Thank you, guys. Make sure you do that before you go. All right. Turn to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. Um, We've been um, walking through the book of Acts, which is the... Um, the narrative and the story of the beginnings of Christianity and how it spread from Jerusalem um, to us, to the ends of the earth. So um, it's been a wondrous journey. We are in chapter 25 this week, and we have, you know, it's chapter 28, it's the last one. So we haven't got long, and we're done, all right? And so this Sunday, we're going to be looking at the first four no, 12 (laughs) verses of chapter 25 um, of the book of Acts, okay? And I'm going to read, and as always, let's remember that the reading of God's word um, is a precious gift um, for all of us. Um, And so let's read and let's um, dive in afterwards. Um, let, actually, let's start from Acts 24, verse 27, just to get a bit of context, okay? Acts 24, verse 27, okay? It reads, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Posius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. Verse 26. Verse 6, sorry. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened a court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourselves know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true... No one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Let's pray. God, our Father, help us. Help us understand 
what this is all about and help us understand how it applies to us and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Rome, if you know this, was the largest and most influential city in the ancient world during the days of Paul the Apostle. Um, Rome was like London or Paris or New York um, or, um, you know, in our modern world. And so for this reason, it was a city that needed to hear the gospel. That is the good news of what God has done for humanity through Jesus Christ. Okay, Rome, big city in those days, needs the gospel. And so in Acts 23, if you remember, if you've been with us, when Paul was, um, there was a time where Paul was super discouraged and he was down um, and he was fearing for his future. And then what happened was Jesus appeared to him um, and said to Paul, this is Acts 23 verse 11, um, Jesus said to Paul, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Despite the surrounding chaos, despite the uncertainties, God had a plan for Paul. God had a plan to use Paul as his instrument to spread the gospel to Rome. This was God's plan for Paul, and nothing was going to stop it from coming to fruition. I've got a question for you. What are you most passionate about? Think of something or someone you are passionately committed to. What are you obsessed with? Okay, if I can confess, I'm obsessed with soccer, okay? The Euros are on, the European Cup is a big kind of World Cup just for European countries, and um, it's been an obsession of mine. It really has. Um, if you was to ask Jeff Bezos what he is most passionate about, he'll probably say Amazon, or remaining or being the richest human being on this planet. Um, ask Elon Musk, and he'll probably say, I'm passionately committed to Tesla and flying to the moon. If you was to ask LeBron James what his obsession is, he'll say, I want to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time, um, ahead of MJ. Every baseball season, the Padres are passionately committed to winning the World Series. One of my daughters is obsessed right now with fake nails. <laughs> Just a thing now. One morning, um, I was in the living room studying and she ran up to me and the first thing she said to me was, Dad, look, my nails have stayed on. <laughs> Basically, these nails that she glues on come off all the time and she was just so excited that they had stayed on all night. What are you passionately committed to? Have you ever thought about what God is passionately committed to? If you were able to actually talk to God and you was able to ask him what he was passionately committed to, what would he say? What is God 
creator of the universe, obsessed with. If you read the Bible often, you'll probably notice this, that God is most passionate about the fame and the renown of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? I dare you to spend this week reading in the entire Bible looking for the many places God um, um, talks about his desire for Jesus to be known and worshipped. You see it everywhere. God is all about everyone, everywhere, knowing, valuing, loving, and living for Jesus Christ. And so this morning, from our passage, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see how God is passionately committed to the fame of Jesus and how his passion strengthens our commitment to the fame of Jesus. And so first, God is committed to the fame of Jesus. And so, after Paul's encounter with Jesus, what happens is that he escapes an assassination attempt on his life when he's sent to Caesarea to stand trial before Felix the governor. Um, Felix, he's procrastinating. We saw that last week. He's not only procrastinating when it comes to surrendering his life to Jesus, but he's procrastinated on making a decision or in bringing about a verdict when it comes to Paul's trial. And so after two years, okay, um, he steps down, and we have a new governor in Caesarea. His name is Festus, and he's the opposite of Felix, because Felix, um, from what we know about him, was consumed with selfish ambition. He wanted to make his leadership all about him. Okay, but Festus, on the other hand, was a good guy, and he wanted to lead with integrity and selflessness. Recently, if you've been watching the news, um, President Joe Biden traveled to the UK um, to meet Boris Johnson, who is the British Prime Minister. Um, this was the first time I think they've met in person since Biden became president. And the main purpose of the meeting was to talk and discuss and, and talk about how um, they can strengthen the relationship between the US and the UK. Okay? If you've noticed, whenever a new leader comes into power of some sorts, they meet other leaders. Okay? They meet them in order to discuss how both of their countries can really build good relationships. And Festus, this is what he's kind of doing. What he does is he travels to Jerusalem to meet face-to-face -face with the leaders of the Jewish community known as the Sanhedrin. Okay? They have a lot to talk about. Relations between the Jews and the Romans have not been great. And so during the meeting, Festus shares his vision on how they can improve relations between Jews and Romans, okay? The Jewish leaders, super grateful for Festus and his desire to take time out and discuss how they can have better relationships. But during the meeting, they ask him to prioritize the case and the trial concerning the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 1 again. It says, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests 
and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Dennis E. Johnson says this. He says, despite the two-year lapse since the trial before Felix, the Jewish leaders had not forgotten the troublemaker Paul, nor abandoned their plotting to eliminate him. Paul was at the top of their list of unfinished business, and they presented to the new um, that they presented to the new governor, right? And so it's been two years, and the religious leaders in, Jew, in um, Jerusalem are still wanting to do away with Paul. And so driven by consuming desire to see Paul the apostle dead, the Jewish leaders ask Festus for a favor. Look at verse 3. They requested Festus as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. So they've basically gone to Festus and said, hey, governor, okay, appreciate you taking time and coming. We are excited about the future of our nations, but can you do us a big favor? Can you have Paul, the apostle, you know that guy that's been in custody and prison for two years, okay, can you have him transferred to Jerusalem for further investigation and a new trial? This all sounds kosher. This all sounds reasonable. But as you guys saw, the last part of verse 3 reveals the real reason they made this request, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. The real motive behind their request is that they saw the transfer of Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem as an ideal opportunity to engineer yet another assassination plot. Um, R. Kent Hughes says this, on the face of it, the Jews' request was fair to have the hearing in their holy city, not in a foreign locale, but beneath the surface lay evil motives and violent plans against the Lord's evangelists. Look at verse 4, guys. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him. And so they've, they've asked, can Paul be transferred from Caesarea to Jerusalem? And Festus is like, you know what? It's just a lot of work. Like, practically, it's not going to work, okay? I'm on my way back to Caesarea, and what I want you guys to do is just come with me, and we can have the trial there. It's just way easier, Okay. As a church, we exist to be a church family on mission with Jesus. Our desire as a church has always been and will always be to see everyone everywhere know, admire, honor, love, trust, and live for Jesus. Okay? We're confident this is what God has called us to and so we do all we can to remain committed to God's mission so that Jesus may become more and more famous in our city, our nation, and our world. But one thing we should never forget and always remember is that God is more committed to the mission he's called us to than we are. 
In other words, God is way more committed to the fame of his son, Jesus Christ, than will ever be. The decision by Festus to reject the Jewish leaders' request to transfer Paul to Jerusalem saved his life. It literally did. If he would have said, let's do it, Jewish leaders would have assassinated Paul. But for some reason, we don't know, Festus said no. And this saved Paul's life. So did Festus know about the plot to murder Paul? We just don't know. But whatever his reasons for rejecting their request, his decision was all about, was all part of God's invisible plan for Paul to get to Rome. God is sovereign. You guys have heard that term before. God is sovereign. What this basically means is that God is fully in control of everyone and everything. Nothing escapes God's control. He knows everything and he is in control of everything. God's sovereignty or province, sometimes it's called God's province, speaks to God's intimate rule, his detailed governance, and his loving governance over all things. What we've seen over and over again from Paul's life is that as chaotic as his circumstances appear to be, God was in control. This was the third assassination attempt on Paul's life in the last five chapters, if you read back. But each time there was a plot to take his life, God protected him and preserved him. Okay, you've seen it over and over again. People are trying to kill Paul. And over and over again, Somehow, in some way, he escapes. The most memorable one for me was when a group of trained assassins made a vow not to eat anything unless they killed Paul. Like 40 plus guys, and they're trained assassins. They're, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. But Paul managed to escape. How did that happen? Apparently, his nephew <laughs> finds out about the plot and informs him, and then he escapes over and over again. There's, a, there's an attempt to take Paul's life, and God protects him and preserves his life. And so the question is, why? Because Paul was part of God's unstoppable plan to make Jesus known in Rome. God is passionately committed to his fame. And his purpose to be known and praised and enjoyed among all the nations cannot be stopped because he is sovereign over all. And so, King's Church, 
as we seek to know Jesus and make him known in our country, in our, um, in our city, and in our world, um, we should never forget that God is more committed to his mission than we are. And because of this, he's at work in us and through us so that everyone everywhere may know, treasure, love, and live for Jesus. That is the reality. God is passionately committed to the fame of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we've just seen. Next, let's look at how God's commitment to the fame of Jesus strengthens our commitment to the fame of Jesus. Look at verse six. After spending eight or 10 days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. And so the morning after he returns to Caesarea, he gets right to work. Um, this trial has been going on for two years, and he's a new governor. He just wants to start focusing his time on things that are more important. And so he says, let's get cracking. After, the, you know, after he gets back from Jerusalem, next morning, he's back in it. Paul, after two years in custody, is now released, and he's about to face his accusers again. I was thinking about this, and I was like, man, like, what, would it, what is it like for Paul? Like, everything he's gone through, over and over, he's, he's going to this trial, he's trying to get killed here, he escapes this, and so now, uh, another trial, the trial has been revived, and he's back again, and he's about to stand before another governor and defend himself against a group of Jewish leaders who are trying to kill him. Um, what is he going through? How is he thinking? Um, I just think everything he's endured um, has definitely taken an emotional toll on him. Um, and so, how is he going to react? Is he going to still say he's innocent? Is he still, is he going to just succumb under the pressure and just give in and say, do you know what? I am guilty, whatever, just take my life. How's he going to respond? Before we hear from Paul, we'll first hear from his prosecutors. Look at verse seven. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And so, like, this is crazy. So these Jewish leaders are bringing the same, over and over, the same charges against Paul. It's been two years, and they're bringing the same charges against Paul. And the irony is, um, everything they're bringing is ineffective. It's just weak charges. Why? Because they have no evidence to support them. And so, after they've brought their charges... Um, to Paul, Paul steps forward to make his defense. And Paul is super straightforward. He is direct. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, it says, Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. That is it. Drops the mic. He sits down, whatever. It's just, he's, he's just straightforward. Um, straightforward, just confidently denies all the charges brought against him. And he declares, I've not done anything. I am not guilty, okay? I've not broken the law. I'm not guilty as a Roman citizen. You don't have nothing on me. 
Right now, you can imagine Governor Festus, he's just stepped into power, he's been excited, but this case is just something he has to deal with. And I think he's in a really sticky situation right now. Okay? And the reason is this Paul is an innocent man. Okay? The charges brought against him cannot be proven. And so, if Festus drops the charges against Paul and releases him, which is the right thing he should do, but he doesn't want to do it because if he does release Paul, it's going to affect his popularity ratings among the Jewish leaders, okay, among the Jewish community. But if he delivers a guilty verdict and gives Paul the death sentence, his integrity will be on the line because Paul's innocent. And so he has to think of like a radical middle and come up with a solution that appeases everyone and that benefits him. And so let's see what he says next to do that. Look at verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? So if you remember, if you remember in verse 3, do you guys remember verse 3? Yeah, the Jewish leaders asked Festus transfer Paul from Jerusalem to Jerusalem for his trial. But what happened is we found out that the actual the request was actually a plot to kill Paul on the way. Um, we're not sure, again, whether Felix knew about this secret plan, but he turned down the request nonetheless. And so why has Festus changed his mind? Why is he suddenly willing to do what he had refused to do earlier? We're just not sure. Information's not given to us, but we know for sure he's looking after himself, and he's looking out for himself. And so, he asks Paul whether he's open to go to Jerusalem for the trial. So Paul's confused. Um, his life is literally on the line once again. He knows for a fact that he's been attacked from all angles, um, these powerful Jewish leaders want him dead. The governor of Caesarea, Festus, the judge of the trial, is wanting to appease the Jews. And so how does he respond to this adversity? Look at verse 10. Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be um, tried. I've not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourselves know very well. And so Paul refuses to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't see the reason why. He's not guilty. He's totally innocent. And he doesn't see why he has to go back to Jerusalem and be tried there. Okay? And so, Paul could demand a fair trial before Festus. Jewish leaders obsessed with executing him. Festus is obsessed with pleasing the Jews. Because of this, Paul knows he will not receive a fair trial here in Caesarea and in Jerusalem. And so what he does, he opts for an option that will help him avoid this. He petitions for a transfer to Rome. Look at verse 11. If however I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. What does this all mean? It was the right of every Roman citizen to have his or her case heard by Caesar himself whenever trials 
whenever a trial just went on too much and they couldn't make a decision. Um, this was, in effect, an appeal to the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. Look at verse 12. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And so after discussing Paul's request with his counsel, Festus says to Paul and everyone else there, Paul, so be it. You're going to go to Caesar to continue your trial. He agrees to it. Paul is going to Rome, not as expected, but is a fulfillment of God's plan and God's will. It's possible some of you are thinking to yourself right now, why didn't Paul wait on God and allow him to miraculously get him to Rome, why did he have to use these legal means in order to get to Rome? John Calvin once said, and this is a great quote, God, who has appointed courts of law, also gives his people liberty to use them lawfully. In other words, there is nothing wrong with using what we have to protect us, and to get us to where God wants us to go. Um, Eckhard Schnabel says this, Christians do not risk or shouldn't risk their lives unnecessarily. If there are legal means by which they can save themselves, they will use them, especially if this allows them to live and see another day when they can continue to preach the gospel. Paul knew his mission in life. He knew that God was calling him to take the gospel to Rome. And so what he does is that he uses his rights as a Roman citizen, not just to avoid a death penalty, but ultimately to fulfill God's purpose for his life. And that is to be God's instrument to take the gospel to the largest and most influential city in the ancient world. That's what's happening with Paul. He's using his Roman rights, his rights as a Roman, in order to fulfill God's purposes for him, in order to contribute and be part of God's, um, God's spread of the gospel to Rome. What do you have that can be used for the gospel? What do you have that you can use to make Jesus famous? Maybe for some of you is your expertise. You're a Christian and you're a doctor um, and you could use your profession in order to advance the gospel. Some of you are teachers, and there might be opportunities in the future for you to use your expertise um, to even possibly get into a country that is closed from any Christianity so that you can communicate the gospel there. Some of you can use your home 
to advance the gospel. Um, there's a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Author is Rosaria Butterfield. That's such a cool name, by the way. Um, she invites readers into her home and shows from her own life and experience how radically um, ordinary hospitality can be a bridge for bringing the gospel to lost friends and neighbors, something that she experienced herself on her. It's just amazing. Like We could use our homes and our apartments, okay, um, for the um, spread of the gospel. Um, Eleanor and I have been trying to practice this recently. Um, two weeks ago, we had a, a guy come over. I met him when I was working out, and his name is Jan. I can't say his name. Why am I saying his name? And he, he came. He's great. And he, um, he came over for dinner. And it was great to have him, and he had a bunch of questions to ask us, and he was just compelled by our family and what we're about. And right at the end, he started to tell me how um, in the past he's really considered God and like God and exploring Christianity and everything. And he's just asking me a bunch of questions. And so, like, what do you have that you can use for the spread and the impact of that? You can use your home, right? Your career, like. Some of you, all of you work. I'm sure you do. And <laughs> I hope you do, and you're not just hanging around. Um, all of, and, and, and like where God has put you around all of these people and around the relationships you have with your coworkers, what an opportunity for you to utilize and leverage that um, for the spread of the gospel, man. Um, incredible. Your finances. If you can't go, they say, carry the rope for people that go. You know, there's an analogy that says, if you can't go down to the well, okay, hold the rope for someone. And one of the ways you hold the rope is definitely prayer, but also finances. Giving um, to King's Cross, through King's Cross for God's mission, and giving to other missionary organizations that are passionate about evangelism, whether whether it's here in San Diego on college campuses or worldwide. So many opportunities. And of course, you should use your time. How can you use your time to contribute to the spread of the gospel in this city where you are? Several years before this incident with Paul, okay, Jesus Christ was standing trial before the Roman authorities. He was innocent of the charges they brought against him, uh, of the charges the Jewish leaders brought against him. He was charged with blasphemy um, because they had heard him say that he was God. He was innocent of this because it's true. Jesus is God in human flesh. But he didn't fight for his rights. He kept silent and was eventually sentenced to death by crucifixion. Paul may have used the justice system to escape death and get to Rome, but Jesus used the justice system, as corrupt as it was, to get to the cross so that he can die for our sins. And our purpose in life is to use whatever we have to know Jesus 
and make him known wherever we are. Why is God passionately committed to the fame of his son, Jesus Christ? And why should we be committed to the fame of Jesus Christ? Because through his perfect life, through his suffering, through his death and resurrection, salvation is made available to everyone everywhere who believes. And so, I'll leave you with the words from John Piper. He says this. Um, he says, We can be drunk with private concerns and indifferent to the great enterprise of world evangelization. But God will simply pass over us and do his great work while we shrivel in our little land of comfort. And so, church, may you commit to using whatever God has given you, not for your benefit, but so that Jesus may be known and adored and worshipped. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your love your mercy, and your grace. You are so good to us. We love you. Thank you for helping us see how you are committed to the fame of your son, Jesus Christ, and your commitment should inspire us to do the same, to use whatever you've given us for the purpose of knowing Jesus and making him known. In his name we pray, amen.